Good morning, friends. Uh, my name is Ben Seaman, and I serve on staff here as our lead minister. And as Andrew communicated, if this is your first weekend with us, we want to welcome you. Uh, we're excited that you're here with us today. We're, we're spending January uh, talking about prayer, uh, and actually, more specifically, dangerous prayers. And we've been praying uh, specific prayers every week. As you'll notice, there are cork boards uh, along the walls uh, that have been prayers of you amongst our community uh, for various uh, things. What I'd like to do before I jump into the sermon today is in the seat back in front of you, you have the next prayer card. It's called the Prayer of Death. We're not even near Halloween, but here we are. So go ahead and grab that card. I will stare at you like a youth pastor until you do it. Um, go ahead and grab that card out of the seat back in front of you. Uh, you can later choose to engage or not engage. But hold on to this guy. Uh, we will uh, use it later at the end of the sermon. In 2001, uh, my life changed dr- drastically multiple times. Uh, just at the, the, the last uh, three or four months of 2001 uh, in particular, in, in 2001 of August, uh, my parents dropped me off at Ozark Christian College, and I was my own man. I was 18. I was on my own, freshman in college. Uh, but that was the last time uh, I would see my parents together as a married uh, couple. Uh, four weeks later, um, 9-11 happened. Uh, I turned 19 on 9-11, uh, and I was also barely passing an English test when I came out and heard that there was an attack on America. Three months after that, uh, I'm home for the holidays in Cincinnati, and a friend of mine uh, gives me a call. <clears throat> it was before texting was a thing. Remember those days? No? Okay. MySpace, I think, was kind of relevant still. Um, and I got a phone call from a friend that said, hey, you need to get to church uh, before you head back to college. Brad is making an announcement. So if you've been around the block here for a while, Brad uh, Canning and Joy Canning uh, were my youth pastors growing up. Uh, Brad and Joy were there for about 10 years. It was his first gig right out of Bible college. He went to Cincinnati Cincinnati Bible College. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll go. And uh, he, he talks about Peter and Jesus and Peter walking out of the boat and sort of that faith is about risk and reward. And uh, at the end of his sermon, he, he goes, Joy and I have something to tell you. And I'm like, wait a minute, I've been broken up before. This isn't going to end well, right? It's a joke. Relax, you can laugh. <laughs> Jeez, come on, people. You get some coffee. And at the end of the sermon, he goes, um, Joy and I can do youth ministry with our um, hands tied behind our backs and our eyes closed. Uh, we, we, we've kind of been coasting over the last year. And we feel uh, compelled, called, and even, here's kind of a better way to say it, invited in by God to leave uh, White Oak, our, my home church in Cincinnati, to move to, are you ready for it? This is after 9-11, Brooklyn, New York, to plant a church. And just because you're a pastor at a church for a long time doesn't mean you make an impact. Uh, but everybody was crying. People were hugging each other. Snot was going everywhere. Uh, Brad and Joy had been there for 10 years. I thought that was normal. Not for youth pastors, man. You're lucky if you keep them for you know, two years. Andrew, you have to stay longer. Um, it's, it's sort of this rotating thing, and, and there's good and bad reasons why. Sometimes it's leadership. Sometimes it's the immaturity of the, of the staff person. But Brad and Joy have been there 10 years. And I went into Brad's office that next day uh, under the guise of buying him lunch. And I said, Brad, dude, you can't leave. You were my youth pastor. You were Nathan's youth pastor. Nathan, my brother Nathan, was going to be a senior that year. 
and Graham was getting ready to go into middle school, right? Everyone remembers how awkward middle school is. And you can't leave. You need to be here. That's called codependency, right? When you have to rely on a pastor for everything or a certain way to do stuff in the church, that's kind of codependency, especially if the pastor's not allowed to follow Jesus on, on your terms, right? And... Uh, he said, hey, man, um, I've got a mother-in-law. <laughs> I don't need you. I've got a mother-in-law who is very angry, angry with me that I would take her six- and three-year-old granddaughters, ready, and move to Brooklyn, New York. Now, I know Brooklyn people are thinking, you know, all the cop shows. It was Park Slope. It is Park Slope, Brooklyn, which is like one of the safest parts of Brooklyn anyways. Uh, but she cannot understand why I would take her grandbabies away from her, right? That's one grandparent that would be mad <laughs> to kind of touch on what Andrew had mentioned. And then, um, and then because I knew I was in the presence of love, uh, a man that was also able to be masculine and then follow Jesus and it not be cheesy. Guys, you know what I'm talking about? So I think men aren't very vocal with their faith, probably because they think they can beat Jesus in an arm wrestling match because the way that Jesus has been portrayed has been this like, not somebody that you'd want to go into battle with. And Brad was that guy. He could be masculine in a healthy sense, uh, but also uh, following Jesus and kind of make those worlds collide. And I was so angry at him, I decided to ask the most American, Western, corporate America question. Well, what if you go and it fails? Then what? <laughs> yeah, he, um, we, we've been through some times. And he was sitting at his desk, silver Sony laptop, and spins around. I'm sitting on his couch, and he says, it's a good question. <laughs> um, but uh, if Joy and I go, and this thing fails, we will still have more stories to tell of our obedience and our failure than what most people do with their lives, going to church every Sunday and literally taking no risks. They've never baptized any of their friends. They've never invited any of their friends. They've never taken a risk to lead a life group and have God conversations. At least if we fail, as corporate Western American would say, at least we were faithful in our obedience to Jesus. I've never uh, forgotten that moment. What Brad was doing, and he probably knew what he was doing. He was like a rabbi. Like you had to figure out what he was doing. Like, he'd slap you on the back of the head with truth, and you're like, oh, that's what he meant. But it was, like, Saturday, and you can't go back and talk to him again, you know? Social media wasn't around. You had to wait till you were physically in the presence of somebody. What he was teaching me was this prayer that we're going to talk about today, which I think is the most difficult and life-changing prayer. I could be wrong. It's fine. It's just the most life-changing and difficult prayer for me to pray. What Brad was doing is he was teaching me the prayer of death. And... The prayer of death has the understanding that um, while we live in Western America, we're supposed to build our lives and be self-made men and women and pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. That all sounds good. It's just not a kingdom value. Uh, American value is uh, autonomy and dependence on yourself. A kingdom value is playing to your weakness, and that's where you find community, and that's where you find uh, relationships. And the prayer of death is sort of this idea that while our culture tells us to consume and hold on to stuff and be angry when we have to release it, that the prayer of death is really this invitation to reconsider that, as Andrew had mentioned, that we live open-handedly. 
that things flow in and out of our hands all the time, right? Like sometimes um, your parenting ends because your kid's in a car wreck the week before graduation. Sometimes pregnancies end. Uh, sometimes marriages end. Uh, sometimes relationships, like deep friendships, like you raised kids in your same neighborhood and now you don't speak to each other anymore. The prayer of death is a gift because it helps us and it reminds us to live open-handedly. J- Jesus, said it, Jesus said it this way. He said this in Matthew 10. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So basically what Jesus is saying is if you live an American life where you value autonomy over community and you hold on to everything, it will, it will literally kill you. It will drive you insane. Uh, but then he makes this odd promise that's odd to Americans and it's odd to the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century, that in death you find life. Now how, <laughs> does, how does somebody at a morgue find life? They're like dead. And Jesus is kind of going, wait a minute. Th- there's a prayer that you can pray that when you have to pray the prayer of death, uh, you will not be beat up over it. You will actually find life. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. You kind of get this sense that, that Christianity is one long goodbye, right? Which can, in one sense, kind of be like, this is us, TV show depressing. But then it's also like a relief, too. Because it built in the expectation, as we all journey with Jesus together and individually, there are times in our lives, whether we want to or not, or whether we are ready or not, that we have to let go of some things and not hold on to stuff so tightly. I remember when I was going into Bible college, my my non-Christian aunts and uncles would look at me and go, oh, well, that's okay, right? Like, did you fail the ACT test? Did you remember how to spell your name right? Um, and, and, I, and I love them to death, and, and, and they're, you know, fine with me being a pastor. I don't re- really care if they are or not. It's what I love to do. But you get this sense of, like, it's okay to be a Jesus follower, just don't get crazy. And then you read about missionaries like, you know, Jim Elliott, right, who was a missionary to the Ecuadorian people, and he was told not to go. They're going to kill you. They don't have their own language. It's a very, you know, it, it, it's a tribe, so, and you're white, and you don't have a way in. And he says, I still feel compelled to go, and he was murdered by the natives. But what he's most famously known for in his writings is this saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let me read that again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. For Jim and for Brad and for Diedrich and hopefully for you, there is a sense that it's okay to take a risk in life. It's okay to pray and live um, the, the prayer of death because in our obedience and in our death, we will actually find life. Now, that's going to make sense here in a minute. I hope if I do my job, it'll, it'll make sense. So I want to take uh, the rest of our time this morning by actually talking about how um, such a gift it is to pray the prayer of death. And so here's my, here's my big idea. Here, here's the one takeaway I want you to take 
uh, away with you this morning. The big idea is this, that the prayer of death helps us to say goodbye. The prayer of death helps us to say goodbye. Question, why do we only grieve at funerals? Why do we wait for people to die to grieve? Are bodies the only things that die in this thing that we're in called life? You see, the prayer of death invites us to also grieve the living. Uh, when marriages end, when pregnancies end, when we have to uh, sift through the sexual or physical abuse that we endured way back when or maybe now or most recently, there are things in our story and in our lives that are eating us alive if we do not know how to process them and or say goodbye to them. The first gift that the prayer of death is for us, friends, is that it helps us say goodbye to our own self-protection. Just goes straight to the heart of the American culture. Uh, Paul, it says it this way in Galatians 2, 19 through 21. He says, through the law, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Hang with me. We'll explain this later. It's very wordy. That's how Paul writes. Who loved me and gave himself for me. I do, um, so I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I mean, that's a sermon series in and of itself. And Paul goes, yeah, I... I I get the whole self-protection thing. Uh, I, I lived my life under the law. And if you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, what he's talking about is the Torah, the first five books of your Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in that, in Judaism, there are 613 commands that you have to follow. And uh, being religious and obeying rules is easy. Because you know where you stand. You either obeyed them or you didn't, right? I mean, even as kids, when our parents told us to do something, we knew that if we obeyed the rules, things would go well with us, at least in my household. And if they didn't, my dad would come upstairs and I'll just, I'll just leave it at that, okay? Things didn't go well for us. And Paul goes, I, I get the whole self-protection thing. Uh, I hid behind the law. For me, it was being religious, I knew the Torah inside and out. And we have very, we have many intelligent people here that know the scriptures. Some of you have been in ministry, right? He says, I, I, I know the law, I know the scriptures inside and out. And for him, until he became a Christ follower, that was his self-protection. That's the wall that he put up. When you lose somebody, uh, when a job ends, when somebody you love disappoints you, when your kids are hellions that they would make Judas blush, how do you process that? Because what Paul's getting at is um, how we process that stuff, that, that, that's our self-protection. That's the wall we put up. And so for some of us, we just, we overeat. We overspend, uh, we drink too much, uh, we look at porn, we overspend, um, we spend too much time at the office, uh, we have a, you know, a midlife crisis, so we got to go buy something and go sleep with somebody. 
There are all of these modes of self-protection that we go through if we're not praying. I'm talking about like Christians too. Like if we don't pray this prayer of death. And Paul goes, for me, that was religion. Um, I always thought it was interesting that when my parents eventually split up and divorced due to a lot of things, that the substance abuse and the addiction that happened in my household was a complete surprise to my parents' Sunday school class. I kind of go like, what are you doing up there? Oh, we're studying the Bible. Well, do you ever get to know each other? It's easy. It's easy to hide behind good things that aren't really ultimate things, isn't it? Like, how is it possible to be in a life group? That's the language we use. Sunday school is not really as much of a thing anymore as it used to be. Um, but how can you be part of the same group and not be known? Is that your fault or is that the group's fault? Or is it like, I mean, I'm not, I'm just asking the question out loud for you to engage here with what I'm saying. Or is it, or is it a mixture of both? You see, my parents, like you, had some really tough times, and they chose to self-medicate through different things. And my dad was drumming. My mom was teaching Sunday school. Ben and Graham were, um, Ben and Nathan, Graham wasn't around just yet. I was playing guitar in the student worship band. I know I just told you that, so Brian, don't schedule me to play guitar. Because when you tell the worship pastor you play guitar, they're like, oh, you love Jesus and you play guitar. Great, sign up. Um, and yet my life, my house was a war zone. And so is yours. You just hide it well. Right, so we kind of have to go, are we going to be a church that uh, is, builds high walls of self-protection? And are we going to be a church that's defined by our false story? Or I'm sorry, our death story, which is the thing that has defined us our whole life? And it's different for different people. Or are we going to go past the walls and find a person that's been waiting for us to be with him? Uh, Jesus. And notice the shift at the end of this text in Galatians. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I've set down the religion. I've set down the church attendance, the Bible studies, the prayers, the fasting. God bless you if you fast. I couldn't do it. I've, I've put all of those down for a person. That's scary, friends. It, it's scary because people in your life have let you down. They've divorced you. They've fired you. They've cheated on you. They've not come through for you. And Paul is going, okay, I'm going to make this shift where I'm going to put down all of my uh, religion and my dependency on being a good person, which is what separates Christianity from all other religions, to me, in my opinion, gives me life. I'm going to put that down, and I'm going to put all of my hope in the person of Jesus. That's like an all-or-nothing trade. Because at least with religion, you know, like, okay, I haven't killed anybody today. It was a little bit of a white lie, but like, you know, whatever. It's tax season, right? At least I didn't, you know, I didn't get a rat. Okay, that's fine. But with a person, a person, I mean, that, 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 that's a game changer, isn't it? 
Because you have to get to know that person. You have to trust that person, especially when Jesus says things like, if you lose your life, you'll actually find more life when you pray the prayer of death. And so Paul goes, I understand that life has disappointments. Life has uh, frustrating moments. Suffering does not care if you're white or black, rich or poor, from America or any other part of the world. Suffering doesn't even care what religion you even follow or if you're an atheist this morning. It's going to happen. It's a rhythm and it's a groove of the song that we're all listening to and experiencing called life. And Paul goes, I'm going to step outside of self-protection and I'm going to trust in the work of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection to help me, because this is where preachers can get theoretical. I want to be very concrete. To help me say goodbye to something that has defined my life. Maybe my entire life. And it's not bearing it, it's not bearing it right? Or it's not uh, sweeping it under the rug. I can't talk right now. Because uh, Christians have a, t- people have a tendency to do that, but Christians have a tendency to do that. So they can put on a smile on their face. Hey, good morning. How's it going? It, it's, it's this tendency of, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust Jesus to help me say goodbye to something really horrific. And I'm going to honor the fact that it happened. Now, what I'm saying is, if, if you've been abused, I'm not saying you're honoring your abuse. No, that's demonic. Uh, wh- what I'm going to say is, I'm going to honor that that is part of my story, but it doesn't define my story. And instead of sex or gluttony or porn, or spending too much money, or going on vacations, or moving every three years to run for my problems. I'm going to step outside of the walls of self-protection and not trust in religion, but I'm actually going to trust in this man, Jesus, who apparently 2,000 years ago died for my sin and rose again three days later. The prayer of death is an invitation to come out of hiding, man. It's an invitation to come alive. And it's a lot because you're putting down the thing that you have used to self-medicate your entire life and say, I'm not, I'm putting down a thing for a person. And I want to get to know the person. I just don't want to know that Jesus died and, you know, got me out of hell or whatever. I I, want to know how to have full life now. I want to be able to move past the things that I've given permission uh, to define me. And part of that gift and that release valve is praying the prayer of death, saying, Jesus, how do I say goodbye to what was, even if I wanted the marriage to last, even if I wanted my baby to go full term and give birth, even if I wanted to stay at that job, even, with, even if I wish this church, this church or another church didn't hurt me so badly, how do I say goodbye in a way that honors what happened, but you empower me so I can move forward and not be defined by the thing that has been my death story. Secondly, prayers of death help us to say goodbye to the dead and the living. A few years ago, uh, I was in conflict with a, a, a relationship, and I was talking to uh, my, 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 my counselor, and, and she goes, well, here's the deal, Ben, like the person you're mad at doesn't exist. I'm like, how much, do you see dead people? How much am I paying you? <laughs> um, and she said, the, 
the problem is in, your, in this particular relationship is you want that person to be somebody that could have nurtured you, but God did not wire them that way. And so you're mad at someone that doesn't exist, and you're putting the burden on them to be that person that would have been phenomenal to love you and nurture you and to help you grow. You need to say goodbye to the invisible, per- invisible person uh, that you're angry with. And so I went home and uh, made sure Crystal wasn't there because it was a lot of tissues, and I began to write a letter. I didn't mail it to them, but I just said, uh, I'm saying goodbye to this relationship that doesn't exist, but I needed it so I could stay angry at you and justify my anger towards you, uh, but I want you to know that I'm, I'm saying goodbye and I'm moving on. And it was just like, a weight had been lifted. Now, has that relationship improved? Yeah. Is it great? No. But now I have perspective on it because I'm trying to figure out, Jesus, how do I pray this prayer of death? Not that I can just get over it, which is a terrible thing to say when people are struggling, but to find life after it, right? Because the stuff that happens in your life, whether you walk away from Jesus or not, still does not prove or disprove that God exists. Like, you still have to deal with your pain. The question is, what are you going to do about it? And so often we like to hold on to stuff, don't we? Well, we're told to, you know, be a self-made man, woman, go get an education, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, don't let anybody tell you no, hold on to everything. The problem is sometimes when we hold on to things, this is another prayer which we're not gonna talk about, uh, is we don't have permission to hold on to them. You know, maybe there was a season we had permission to be married to that person. Maybe there was a season that we had permission to be a parent to that child. And that season's over. And look, look, look that's really hard to say. And it's really hard to hear. But we, out of self-protection and self-preservation, find comfort in holding on things, believing the lie that we're actually in control of anything in our lives. Uh, Jim Powell is my lead pastor at Richwood's uh, Church in Illinois before I came here. He and I have both since moved on. He started um, a, a nonprofit called 95 Network. 95 uh, Network uh, helps serve and coaches churches that are 500 or less, which I think if, if I remember the math, 95% of churches in America are 500 and less. And he doesn't go in to be like, here's how you become a megachurch because uh, there's too many variables for that. He just says, hey, if you're 200, hel- let me help you be a healthy 200. If you're 500, let me help you be a healthy, thriving 500, which was really like life-giving to me when I found out that a megachurch pastor wasn't you know, into making every church a megachurch, just healthy churches. I thought that was huge. And so whenever he would say in staff meeting, hey, I got to drive uh, 20 hours this week into a church in the middle of nowhere. Who wants to be my driver? Man, I would raise my hand. You kidding me? 48 hours with that guy? He's like the Steve Jobs of church leadership. He's amazing. And I remember we were in his, uh, his car, and uh, I asked him, I said, what's the most frustrating thing about uh, church, um, uh, church consultant work? And he's like, well, the, probably the same thing with any kind of consulting work, church or business. You go there, you give them the tools, and they don't do anything with it, right? And he said, there was a church uh, that I... Uh, I, I counseled and helped a few years ago, and they were just spitting out pastors left and right. Like they couldn't keep they couldn't keep anyone there longer than a year and a half. 
And I was like, what happened? And he said, well, basically, uh, a pastor would get there, and you would have the leaders, and then the leaders, wink, wink, you know what I'm talking about? Every church has them. They don't maybe have titles, but they have influence, and in church life, that probably carries more depth than a, a, a title. And uh, the, the pastor would settle in about a year and a half and say, hey, I've got some ideas. And they're like, nah, no, you don't, bye. And they would just sift through pastors every year and a half. And I said, what, what, why do churches do that? And he said, something I'll never forget. It's just they, they can't let go of the past. Like whatever they did back when they first started coming or when they were younger or they were raising their kids, they feel like they have to keep doing that until you know, they stop coming or they, they pass away. And because of that, as a result, that a church wanted to hold on, they kept spitting out pastors every like year and a half to two years because they would not pray the prayer of death. They just hid behind what, what we always did and what works all the time, even though sometimes that perspective is right and sometimes it's wrong. The point of what I'm trying to make is sometimes we hold on to things for too long that we should really be saying goodbye to. It's hard. It's really hard, especially when they're people and they're people we love and they're people we care about. You know, in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 30, Paul says, gives us a command, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Like we can make the Spirit of God cry. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. If we hold on to stuff, for too long. It could be relationships. It could be a marriage. It could be a job. It could be, you know, um, it could be whatever it is you're thinking right now and you want me to move on. It's that thing, right? And if we hold on to it, Paul says we can make the Holy Spirit cry. Because we hurt his feelings? No. Because the Holy Spirit knows what we're running from, which is there is life in death. Jesus promised us that. But we have to step into it to receive it. We have to be people willing to pray prayers of death if we want to experience the life change of that. I, and it's not a formula. I don't know how it works. But I, don't know, I know we don't have a shot of uh, seeing it work if we don't have obedience. I, I know that for a fact. And Paul says when we don't, uh, when we hold on to stuff, we can really grieve the Holy Spirit and live unnecessary life. Like, it's unnecessary to hold on to this stuff. And the Spirit kind of goes, why are you doing this, man? I, I love you. Like, like, let it go. There's life after your perception of what a preferred future should look like. Thirdly and finally, the prayer of death says, give me a greater vision. Give me a greater vision. Uh, in John 12, 24, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, which is like, hey, listen up, this is important, okay? Whenever he, whenever he says very truly I tell you, or very, very, depending on what translation you have, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Part of the reason why you're not thriving in your life is because you're holding on to the thing that defines you. Part of the reason why you are not thriving in your life is because you're holding on to your death story. That thing that has defined you your entire life. Whether it's abuse, 
uh, a horrible, overbearing parent, a job loss, um, feeling, um, you know, made fun of because of your weight. I mean, it, it could be, it's the thing that you're thinking of right now. It's the thing you're thinking of right now. And Jesus kind of goes, hey, if you want a greater vision for your life, if, if you want to thrive, if you want to experience this thing that I give you called eternal life, there's got to be a moment in your life where you, you have to die. You have to die to what you thought was your preferred future, but is now your shattered dreams. And I will walk you through this. We will do this together. Like, th- this is how good the gospel is. Like, it's just not about, like, some homeless guy dying on a cross and rising again three days later so we don't have to go to hell. It's about full life right now. Jesus talked about the kingdom of God and eternal life in the Greek in the present tense. You are being saved right now. You are being renewed right now. The resurrection is happening right now if you're willing to pray the prayer of death, friends. You have this prayer of death card uh, in front of you. I want to encourage you to pull it out. We want, we want to invite you uh, to write your prayer of death. Uh, it, it's a heavy thing to think about, so if you want to take it home and, and uh, spend some time praying about that, please go ahead and do that. That's fine with us. Uh, here's what the prayer of death is asking. It's asking Jesus, what do I need to say goodbye to? Just as simple as that. What am I, in my life, am I holding on to that I need to say, it's done, goodbye. Uh, I wanted better for it, but I'm not gonna live in a shattered dream. So Jesus, would you help me as I pray this prayer of death, see on the other side this full life that you seem to constantly be talking about and offering. Friends, this is not an easy prayer to pray, but it is a necessary prayer to pray for a church to uh, uh, increase its depth and volume and maturity in discipleship. And Jesus says, if you're willing to die, you'll find me on the outside of the wall that you've been building protecting yourself. There, and there, you will find life. Let me pray. You can write on your card. When you're done, post it on the cork boards. We've got communion at the front and the back. You can take communion as well when you're ready. Jesus, thanks so much for uh, this release, release valve uh, called the prayer of death. Uh, Jesus, um, we don't really know how to say goodbye until it's over. And sometimes when we go to loved ones' funerals, we wonder, did, uh, did they love us? Were they happy with us? Um, and and y- your gospel says that we don't have to wait to the funeral. We can pray the prayer of death and find life now. And so I pray uh, for my friends here in this very real moment and those watching online as well that we would be so bold and be honest and say, Jesus, like this is the thing that has been defining my life. It has been holding me back from real life, eternal life, experiencing freedom in you. Uh, The pastor said, if I did this over time, I would find more life. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm willing to take that step and write this down on my card. And I'm hopeful that it is because you've been faithful to me in the past. Why not one more time? Jesus, we pray this prayer in your name. Amen.